This is Paul Adamson, and as you'll hear, this podcast takes place in a rather noisy London cafe, where my guest is George Parker, political editor of the Financial Times and a former Brussels bureau chief of the FT. Uh, I think, uh, George, because events are moving so quickly now in British politics, we should maybe point out when this podcast is being recorded. It's the morning of Tuesday, the 13th of June, and things may change before the end of this conversation, never mind by the end of the day. So, quick question, easy, easy peasy question. How has the general election of last Thursday changed the whole dynamics around the Brexit discussion? Well, I think it's changed it fundamentally because um, the version of Brexit that Theresa May was pursuing, often characterised as being a hard Brexit, has effectively been rejected by the British electorate. Um, she was talking about the idea of walking away from negotiations without a deal at all, of cliff-edge Brexit, if you like. That's been rejected. Um, she's seeking a deal with the Democratic Ulster Unionist Party, who, although they're pro-Brexit, they want uh, basically no border between the North and South. That means there's got to be a deal in Brussels. It could mean that Britain has to remain in the customs union. And I think the whole dynamics, of the power dynamics have changed, that you've got a whole load of people in the Cabinet now, like Ruth Davidson, who attends the political Cabinet, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, who are keen for Britain to have a much more open relationship with the European future. So I think the dynamics have changed profoundly. Um, and... I think the type of Brexit we'll have will be fundamentally different. And I still think there's a question about whether this Parliament will be able to deliver Brexit at all. Why do you say that? Well, there's no Commons majority. I think that's the, it's, it's the arithmetic of this new House of Commons. Even with the, a, a deal with the DUP, um, Theresa May only has a majority of a, a handful, of, handful of votes. And she has to put through Parliament to enact Brexit a mountain of legislation, an absolute mountain of legislation. So she has to put through the so-called Great Repeal Bill, which is the, the bill which transfers EU law into British law. That's not as simple as it sounds. You have sort of a whole load of new regulatory structures, arguments like, say, medicines or aviation, to, um, to allow us to leave the single market. On top of which, you have to have seven or eight massive pieces of primary legislation on things like customs, on immigration, uh, on agriculture. Those are huge bills. Now, to get all those things through the House of Commons and the House of Lords will be very problematic because Labour will be making life difficult for all the way along the line. Now, Labour, of course, won't say it's trying to frustrate Brexit, but the fact is that these bills could get bogged down in the detail and Labour will say, well, hang on a sec, we don't quite like the look of this. Things could go very slowly, and the slower they go, the tensions will build up in the Conservative Party, but the anti-Europeans and the Conservative Party are getting very frustrated. And at some point, the sort of lid that's been put on Conservative tensions on Europe for a few years now will blow off. Theresa May will be fundamentally weakened. There could be an election. And I think that's why I say I think it's going to be very, very difficult for this Parliament to actually process the legislation you need to make Brexit a reality. Well, I want to get this point about how explicit the government will be about those changing tech. I make the point because um, even if they, their, their, acts, their actions are more important than, than their words, I think from the, the Brussels end of the, of the discussion, where I, where I live in Brussels, is, uh, is for our European partners to see that the government is changing tack. If it's just done through stealth and, and, and Mrs May and others saying, like they were saying during the election campaign, nothing has changed and nothing will change, that doesn't really help the tone and, and backdrop the negotiations, does it? No, I think that's true. I think what you'll need to see, first of all, is a change to the government's negotiating position set out in that letter to Donald Tusk around the activation of Article 50. 
Um, when people talk about soft, a soft Brexit, um, I think there are a couple of immediate things the government could do, although they'll be difficult to manage in the Conservative Party, which would facilitate a, an easier Brexit. So the first thing would be to say we want to stay in the customs union for a, a longer period of time. Um, that would They have some cover for that because staying in the customs union would address the concerns of the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland because it would mean that you wouldn't have to have a new hard border between the North and South in Ireland. That would remove a whole load of problems around Brexit in terms of customs checks, tariffs and all the rest of it. And I suspect that the temporary uh, stay of execution for the customs union, UK stay in the customs union, could become something slightly more permanent. A second thing that they could do is to say that in certain circumstances we are prepared to accept the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. That will facilitate, for example, um, security um, cooperation. It will facilitate uh, some of the regulatory um, cooperation that's required for Britain to have a close relationship with the single market. So those are two things in the, in the short term. The really big one, which nobody really is talking about here at the moment, is whether Britain might, in the end, apply to stay in the single market, a sort of Norway-style EEA deal. Nobody's saying that at the moment because it would seem to be a repudiation of what the British public wanted when they voted to leave the because EU. Because it, it implies a free movement of people. It implies free movement of people, budget contributions right. and ECJ rulings. Nobody's saying that at the moment, but I think that the political facts on the ground as this parliament starts to move forward could be that there will be an inevitability about the fact that we'll need to stay in some sort of EEA single market relationship for a lot longer just to give Parliament the time to actually process the bills needed to make leaving it a reality. To a certain extent, some of this change of tack will be, will be re reflected in the Queen's speech whenever that is delivered in a few days' time, the government's programme for the next Parliament. But you, are you saying also just now that the government has to kind of, in effect, resubmit its Article 50 notification? Well, at the moment they're saying that they won't do that, and indeed they're saying nothing has changed. And I think it might be preemptive even to assume that any of this change of thinking will be reflected in the Queen's speech. Um, the problem is, the moment Theresa May moves away from the Article 50 letter, that she puts herself in a position of huge political danger because that will be the moment where the Conservative right, the pro-Brexit right, Michael Gove, Boris Johnson, Liam Fox, realise things are, things are changing. And that, you know, given the precarious nature of where Theresa May is at the moment, it's a process she's going to have to manage very carefully. So this is something which may have to evolve in the coming months rather than immediately because she is in a position of immediate danger in the aftermath of this election. Okay, well let's switch our focus briefly to the Labour Party. I mean, there's some other euphoria, I suppose, or excitement in pro-EU you know, main, main circles that the Labour Party did so well, and as you're suggesting just now, the Labour Party could play quite influential role in holding the government's feet to the fire in some of the new Brexit dynamics. But it has to be said, of course, that the Labour leadership still seems very in its views on Brexit, it still seems remarkably similar to its views of the, of the views of the Conservative Party and the government. That's true. I mean, the Labour Party's got to be very careful about how they play this because, of course, two-thirds of uh, constituencies that voted Labour in 2015 were pro-leaving the European Union. So anything that makes it look like Jeremy Corbyn is frustrating a Brexit, uh, they run the risk of being punished by their own voters. However, if you look at the result of the 2017 election, there was a whole generation of voters enthused by Jeremy Corbyn. And I think that was part of their part Infused by the fact that it looked like Labour might be able to stop Brexit, something that young voters particularly opposed. 
So, do, do we know that yet? We may be going to make the argument that a lot of young people are now to vote cynically just to, to have a tuition fees abolished and maybe student debt cancelled as well. I don't know that's cynical, but certainly there was a self-interest, I think, is uh, certainly <laughs> true. No, look, I mean, that young people were certainly mobilised by um, an anti-austerity feeling in the country. There's no doubt about that. But I think right. Brexit is part of that sort of general feeling that we need to actually get involved because not voting does have real implications in our lives. So... I think the Labour Party, there are certain things the Labour Party can chivy the governments do, and I mentioned the um, Customs Union and the European Court of Justice um, uh, jurisdiction points. Um, but I think then you get into sort of guerrilla warfare in Parliament, sort of harrying the government, making it difficult for them to get their business through. Jeremy Corbyn talks about this needing to be a, a, jobs, a Brexit for jobs, and that covers a whole variety of things. But you can imagine that at every point along their way, they will make life difficult for the Tories, knowing that the more that Brexit looks like it's going off the rails, the more likely it is the Conservative Party is going to explode and they'll be back in power. Now, if there is an election, and, and it's possible that Labour, the Labour Party could win that, then really all bets are off on, on Brexit. And, uh, you know, you might end up having a totally different discussion about what Brexit would look like, even though none of the, neither of the two main parties at the moment are talking about ditching Brexit altogether. Everybody seems to be assuming that there'll be some kind of general election between sometime between now and the next 18 months, say, but you can give me your, your view on that in a second. But is it right to, to at least make the assertion that, in effect, with the general election whenever it comes this year, next year, uh, it would be, in effect, a second referendum on Brexit? I don't know whether that would necessarily be the case, because um, were either the Conservative Party or Labour Party going into an election promising to to basically pull out of Brexit, that would be a big step. That could trigger a political crisis um, because people would feel, you know, they, if they voted for Brexit in 2016, they would feel that the political class were letting them down. Um, and bearing in mind both Labour and Conservatives at this election campaign to see through Brexit, I think that would be a big step. However, I think what you could see the Labour Party doing um, would be say, look, we've had a look at the options here. Uh, and whilst respecting the, the views of the British people to have Brexit, we think the best way to do that to ensure stability and jobs and investment in the UK is for Britain to have a Norway-style EEA relationship uh, for the foreseeable future. Now, pro-Europeans might think that if, if, we have an if we have an extended stay in the customs union and we have a sort of uh, an extended stay in the single market, at some point, though not maybe in the next three or four or even five years, people will say, hang on a sec, we're very close to EU membership, yet we have none of the advantages. We don't have a say in the trade deals that Brussels is striking. We have no say over the regulations which Brussels is passing, which have a direct impact on our uh, economy. Therefore, wouldn't it be best to flick a switch and go back in if, indeed, the EU will have us back? <laughs> well, one final question to finish off. There's a two schools of thought, as I see it from my vantage point from across the, the channel in Brussels, but in Britain, uh, a year on, as it were, some of the years to date since the, the Brexit vote took place, um, that either people are saying they're kind of, recon even the Remainers reconciled to us leaving the European Union, uh, you know, Remainers have become relievers, as to use the jargon. Because we'd have to get on with it willy nilly. But, but there's, some, there's some modest polling evidence to suggest that maybe there's a small change in, in tack, and, some, and there's now a modest majority of people in favour of us or staying in the opinion. Where do you stand on that? Do you mean a, a majority in the public or a pol in, in parliament? In the public, a public opinion. Um, certainly, the opinion polling recently has suggested 
there may be a slight sort of bit of regret amongst the, the leavers, but I don't think it's I don't think it's anywhere stable enough or strong enough to conclude the public had changed their minds. You know, if you were if if you were interviewing Liam Fox here rather than me, he would point out that. 82% of the public voted for parties that were committed to Brexit, like the Conservative Party or the Labour Party. And I think there would be, I think lots of people, even pro-Europeans, would feel that there would be something profoundly undemocratic about going back on the referendum results. Um, you know, politics is in disrepute enough in most Western countries, but I think that would be, can trigger a, you know, a genuine crisis of, you know, and well beyond the Conservative Party, actually, to, to people feeling they hadn't got what they thought they were voting for. Um, so I think if you are a Ramona, and if you would love to see Britain back in the European Union or staying in the European Union, I think you have to look at this over a slightly longer period uh, and make your arguments in an incremental sort of way. I don't think the public are ready yet to listen to the arguments for reporting Brexit. I think Brexit is still most likely to go ahead. Um, but uh, as a good pro-European, um, I'd like to think at some point in the in the future, maybe when my kids are running the country, that um, Britain will consider going back in. OK, we'll have to leave it there from a very noisy Delaunay restaurant. George Parker, thank you very much for your time.